Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. What does it mean to be happy? It means you feel maybe peaceful. Mm. I wonder what makes you happy. When I'm playing with my cat, that makes me very happy. Was there anything that you didn't think was going to make you happy, but then it made you really happy? Yes. I didn't think that reading was going to make me happy. But then after maybe a year, I reading felt happy to me. I felt Mm. happy when I was reading. What do you mean when you say happy? Sometimes if something's about to happen, I'm excited if something's about to happen <laughs> no, no that was awesome that happen. was a great slip of words i, I want to use that I all the time i said happen i said happen i said happen, I said happen. Okay. stop it all right, all right. okay You're listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Hanuman Goldman, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Goldman and Elizabeth Solomon. What's up, Dan and Liz? <laughs> Hello, Hanuman. Liz, I want to welcome you. I, I know this is the second show you've been on, the second podcast, but it's a delight that you're joining us as a co-host. Mm, thank you, Dan. It's an honor to be here. In this episode, we're continuing the conversation from the last episode with Lori Santos, where she dispelled some common myths about the source of our happiness and laid out what science says actually makes us happy. In this second episode on happiness, we're delving deeper to look at the systems that support and impede our happiness with a special look at the role consumerism plays. So in today's episode, we're actually going to be talking to Natalie Nahai, who is a marketing expert, about the ways that consumer psychology really looks at these sort of false concepts that Lori talks about, about what makes us happy. In our last episode with Lori, Dan, and Hanuman, uh, we all shared a little something that we thought was going to make us happy, but which actually fell short. And so I'm wondering, as we sort of pivot to look at consumer culture, to look at marketing, to look at social media, 
if you two have anything to say about what you see in the environment, what is being marketed to you? Um, what kind of lifestyle, what kind of values are being marketed to you? And what impact does that have on your buying decisions? When I was a kid, my family got uh, a magazine, it was the New Yorker, that had ads that pictured very fancy people in fancy clothes doing fancy things. Uh, ads for diamonds, uh, ads for uh, elite kind of cars. And as a kid, I thought, oh, isn't that great? Maybe someday I'll have that stuff. Then when I got to the point in my, in my life where I could have had that stuff, I thought, what a waste of money. How about you, Hanuman? Anything that you feel that you, through marketing, thought was going to make you happy but actually fell short? You know, I'm the kind of person that will go into a store and see a bunch of things that are really nice and I put them in my cart. But by the time I get to the checkout counter, I put them all back because I've reconsidered this. What, what was I thinking three minutes ago? This is absurd. I don't need this piece of crap. Or even if it's sort of a nice thing, I'm generally content uh, feeling. So I'm... I, I, I was about to paint a really nice picture of myself. And it's true. I do have like, like some fairly simple needs. You know, I, I feel I'm so grateful. And I say it regularly to my family to have a home and food and loving support system. And, you know, it's amazing what we have. Um, but there are plenty of things. Like I have a desk that works fine. I'm about to buy a new desk. You know, I think it's going to make me happier. We'll see. <laughs> my, my desk is so messy right now. Just throwing this one away and getting a new one sounds really nice. You know, even so, I can think of all of the things I've bought that I never bothered to use. Some I never even unwrapped. But at the moment of purchasing them, I think I got a dopamine hit like, oh, this is going to make me happy. This is going to this is going to be great. But then why bother? It's such an interesting um, conversation around material possessions. So I grew up, my father was an antique dealer. So I spent most of my weekends as a child in these shops, like sifting through buckets and barrels of gems and jewels and lost objects. Um, and I've come to realize in terms of acquiring things that Often it's the hunt that is like, it's the treasure hunt that makes me happy. It's not actually the having of the thing, um, which has just been an interesting lesson in my life. This is such an important conversation that uh, impacts every one of us daily. And I'm really excited to be able to share this with people. Let's jump in. Welcome to today's episode with Natalie Nahai. I'm so excited to be here with you, Natalie. Natalie is a speaker, writer, and consultant whose work explores persuasive technology, ethics, and the psychology behind evolving consumer behaviors. Author of the business bestseller, Webs of Influence, The Psychology of Online Persuasion, Natalie's second book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience, is due out in September this year. 
with clients including Google, Unilever, Accenture. She teaches companies how to ethically apply behavioral science to enhance their online presence, communications, and customer experience. Natalie is also host of The Hive podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I've been looking forward to this conversation. So before we get started, just to contextualize all of this under the umbrella of happiness, I'm wondering if you could share what, how do you think of happiness? What is your working definition of happiness or, or do you have one? Well, so I think there's different ways to frame it. I think there's a kind of more short-term pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding, hedonistic, quick-fix happiness, which is more about that fleeting spike of dopamine that you get or sensory pleasure, um, which some of us are much more prone towards seeking than others. Like, I love good food and a great movie. Uh, and so that kind of hedonistic type of happiness is very um, seductive to me and to many people, I would imagine, listening to this, this conversation. The other aspect of happiness one of the other aspects, if we want to think of it in this way, is an ancient Grecian idea of eudaimonia, which is about our seeking purpose, self-expression. It's connected with um, what we might think of as a life well lived, one that upholds the values we aspire to and um, that creates a sense of integrity. And it has these wonderful positive impacts if we're able to pursue this form of deeper happiness throughout the courses of our lives. So I think those are kind of the two lenses through which I would approach the question of happiness. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, you know, in the research of my book, I was surprised by how much crossover there is where you can find pleasure and purpose through brands who are climate negative, for instance, who also do really nice beer. <laughs> so like you can have something that tastes good while doing good. You know, these things are not mutually exclusive, but um, it can be quite a, a helpful frame um, through which to approach the question of happiness. What in your mind, what are the most significant changes in consumer behavior that you're seeing, particularly thinking about this two kinds of happiness, right? The pleasure seeking and the purpose seeking. How are you seeing consumer behavior evolve? So I think some of the trends that we're witnessing being accelerated now were already starting to take shape before the pandemic hit. So especially when we're looking at evolving consumer behaviors in Gen Z and millennials, so people under the age of 35, um, this, these two groups, or this sort of large cohort, if we want to put them together in that bracket, already showed much more interest in fairness, in justice, in inclusivity, in social justice issues, climate justice issues, um, in eudaimonia, in looking for brands and business opportunities that gave them a way in which to express their values, to find meaning and purpose. And so I think What's interesting is that even though these groups are two that have been the hardest hit financially in the last 18 months and beyond, they're also the group that seem to have been the most vocal advocates of these specific calls for progress, despite the hardship financially. And so what that says to me is that these are really quite deep drives that we need to take seriously, whether we're looking to transform our organisations as business leaders or we're looking to reach out to customers and consumers in a more meaningful way, these sorts of trends are here to stay and they're going to amplify as these people make their way into the workforce. Um, and I'm hopeful about that because I think we need to make big changes in order for our, for our systems to become more resilient. So, yeah, I think it's a welcome, a welcome movement in the right direction. 
if I can be so bold as to say that. <laughs> I'm curious just to hear, um, how do you make sense of this evolution? I mean, I think there's one way to make sense of it, right? Which is when we're thinking about uh, taking climate change, for example, it's an incredibly pressing problem, right? We're finally faced with the reality of it. And so there has to be some sort of action that's taken. But I'm wondering if there's anything else you can say about either context or just the way that humans have evolved culturally or psychologically of what is this about the burgeoning of, of the purpose movement really and this sort of deeper connection that younger people are making these days between purpose and happiness? I think, and this is anecdotal, but based on the things that I've read and the thinking I've been doing on it, there seems to me to be a cultural context and a zeitgeist in which established more kind of rigid dogmatic forms of structuring meaning i'm thinking more to do with religion um, and established forms of spirituality these have taken a, increasingly a back seat over the last 10 15 20 years i know that in the uk and in europe this is a trend that has been happening quite a pace possibly ahead of what's happening in the us but even in the us now now we're seeing similar trends and i think in the absence of these more external socially transmissible forms of meaning making there is a god this is the religion that you should follow whatever that religion happens to be we seek to fill in the gap right so there's a sense of who am i what am i doing here um why am i alive what purpose does my life serve the, the questions don't go anywhere so i think there's there's this kind of void this this desire to seek some kind of satisfying answer and i think that in the absence of these answers we're looking elsewhere for for some kind of certainty or at least a starting point um and it seems to me that there's also been alongside this desire for brands and businesses to provide a sense of purpose and meaning i think there's also been more of a shift in the media around books and podcasts that look at things like ritual that look at philosophy so there's kind of there's a lot of stuff in the air happening where i think it points towards a deeper search that's that's taking place um and even with examples of, for instance, if we think about SoulCycle or um, CrossFit, these fitness kind of groups of people, they form cultures. And it's this culture that has a gravity that then attracts people. And babies are born there. People lose their, you know, their, their parents and loved ones within the span of this narrative that's enmeshed in this culture. So I think we're finding ways to satisfy these questions and these urges in maybe not traditional, non-conventional ways that previously would have been fulfilled by religious institutions or educational institutions. It's so interesting to hear you say that because I think it's true. Like the existential questions don't go anywhere. To me, the existential questions are part of what it is to be human, right? And so as we look at the system of religion, we take that as one system, which has become less prominent perhaps in the lives of younger people. And then we look at the sort of system of business, right? It's, it's almost like shifting of focus is what I'm hearing saying to like, okay, who's going to help me sort of find this sense of um, internal inspiration, uh, make sense of really why I'm even here on the planet. And I'm going to sort of take us in a, in a direction really quick, because one thing I find really interesting about your work is that, um, you know, I think people talk about you as a marketing expert, and you very much are, but you're a business expert, you're a culture expert, and you're an organizational culture expert. And I know for me, I, I spent a lot of years working with the Great Place to Work Institute in San Francisco. They manage Fortune Magazine's 100 Best Place to Work list. And one of the things I noticed about these workplaces, um, 
where people reported high levels of happiness was that their brand and their culture were very much part of the same package. And so there was a lot of overlap, right, in terms of both the storytelling that was happening externally and internally, but also the way that values were really lived in both an inward and outward facing way. And so I think it's really interesting because I feel like your work really lives at this overlap as well. Um, and it's something that I feel like not enough people have really articulated <laughs> as being incredibly important or, or real, but I'm wondering what you, if there's anything to comment on that, um, about that overlap of brand and culture and particularly the relationship of that overlap to happiness. Mm. That's such an interesting conversation. We could really dive into full details here. I think when it comes to happiness and it comes to, so the brand is about the kind of the story that you tell of the identity or the values or the personality of the organization. The culture stems from the values that you hold dear, the things that you say, okay, this is what we as a founder or founding group believe to be important. This is how we're going to orient the way in which we do our business. And then obviously that translates to the outside of the organization with marketing. If everything's coherent and linked up nicely, it should be pretty consistent inside and out. And I think if we think about it in terms of relationships, like on a, on a smaller level, the friends that you cherish most often are the ones who have values that you understand, that you connect with. You don't have to agree with all of them. We're all messy and have hard edges and the rest of it. But you'll have some sort of kinship in terms of the values that you say you care about. You'll treat each other according to those values most of the time. And hopefully what you say and what you do are pretty consistent. And I think that's a pretty good blueprint for looking at how organizations can thrive. So looking at the qualities that enable values to be expressed with integrity within and without the organization. Um, and in the book research that I did, there was kind of this, the four C's that lock directly into this, that how do you create a culture in which inside and outside the organization, you're establishing that you can be trusted, which is essentially what you want to do, right? So you've got to make an explicit commitment to your values. You have to be able to show congruence in word and deed. You have to be consistent over time, prove your track record, and you have to be coherent and do things for the right reason, not just because you think it looks good. So I think that kind of structure, when you see it within relationships, within and beyond organizations, um, it gives you a sense of the importance of integrity in trusting the culture that's been established and the people who've created that structure. When you're talking about coherence and integrity, one of the things I um, have been thinking about a lot lately is, um, you know, Dan often talks about the three types of empathy. So cognitive empathy, emotional empathy, and then the third type, empathic concern. And I've been thinking a lot about, I think, you know, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, right? So much of marketing is about um, having some sort of cognitive empathy and maybe the emotional empathy. So you know what your consumers are thinking and kind of the, the emotional states that they're driven by. But this third part of empathic concern of really having a sort of deep kind of rudder of care for your consumers um, I think that's the part when we're talking about purpose washing or green washing or any of these ways where word and deed don't always align, right? The marketing and the behaviors don't always align. I think maybe part of what we're talking about is just the lack of empathic concern. And I'm just curious to hear any thoughts that you have on that. Feeling empathy that often results, I guess, is kind of not just being able to sympathize with someone, but to be able to be sensitive to someone else's potentially negative state. 
uh, if we're going to label it as such. Yeah. And feeling inclined to act on their behalf. So feeling moved to action through empathy too. Mm. So I think it's, this is a really tricky one. I've been thinking a lot about sensitivity recently and the ways in which people talk quite generally. And this is one of the risks that we face when trying to describe entire people and condense them into a a bracket of, for instance, a generation, which for ease of use, sometimes I do too with caveats. But when we think about the younger generations in particular, so again, millennials and Gen Z, even specifically more Gen Z, there's a lot of conversation happening around sensitivity, around um, empathic concern for others, but also heightened individualism, heightened... um, self-awareness self-consciousness and also what that does for the ways in which people relate to each other and relate to themselves so it's this really strange thing where I think empathic concern is something that we're seeing more of you look at the ways in which younger consumers are driving uh, change and conversations around sustainability inclusion diversity um, biodiversity all of these things that that requires you to be able to advocate with compassion on someone else's behalf. And when I say someone else, I also include the more than human world. So bodies of water, entities that are animals or trees, whatever it might be. And so I think we see a great surge of empathic concern in many directions, in a much more universal context than we might have seen in previous generations. But at the same time, I wonder, and I don't know about this for sure, but I wonder if that is also tempered by... um, a greater concern around how one is being perceived out in the world. So if you look at, to kind of go in a slightly different direction, if you look at things like TikTok and Instagram and heavy visual forms of social content, there's a lot more social anxiety among especially young women, but also young men around body image, around mental health. Um, and so there's, there's, there's these kind of all of these different elements that are in this soup of the zeitgeist in which we find ourselves where emotion, empathy, individualism, self-perception, concern for other all interconnect and at the moment create quite a complex picture. One of the things you talk about in your work is um, from like a consumer psychology perspective is competing needs. And so I think it's really interesting that you, you know, I think as I've looked at your work and through your work, you hold a lot of these tensions of understanding kind of the different forces uh, within ourselves and within the culture that might be kind of bumping up against each other. And one of the competing needs I've heard you discuss is the need for novelty and the need for familiarity. And so I want to bring it back to that for a second and, and see if there's anything to say there about this competing need for what is new and this competing need for what is safe and how that impacts our sense of happiness and what that means in terms of consumer behavior. Great question, because of course now we have to look at this through the lens of what that means at this moment in time when all of us have been artificially in many respects severed from our social ties, from physical workplaces, from our places of school, whatever. So I think when we're thinking about novelty and familiarity, um, some of us have, and it's kind of on a spectrum and it changes depending on our state and time in life. But some of us have a greater appetite for novelty. Some of us have a greater appetite for familiarity. Often there's kind of a desire for one or the other or one more than the other. And so when I think about how this is showing up right now, 
I've heard people speak from each end of the spectrum. So some people saying, oh my gosh, I'm so bored with my current lifestyle. I have to get out and have those spontaneous conversations in the corridor, have those serendipitous meetings when I meet with someone randomly in the street. You know, that kind of chaos, that element of surprise, of excitement, of um, of just not knowing what's going to happen next. Like we all need that in some quality or level in our lives. And that gives us, you know, the, the delight of of uncertainty that's the positive aspect of uncertainty on the flip side when we experience times of difficulty or when we experience hardship or when we're afraid or anxious or stressed it can be extremely comforting to return to a secure base which could be a relationship where we feel securely attached we have love and trust there we feel like we're treated with kindness and respect our boundaries are respected Um, or to a space which we know ourselves you know we're in control of it we have um, a certain amount of agency over our environment. So it's kind of that desire for security, predictability, um, and autonomy and control. Like I can shape what's happening around me. And so I think there's kind of this beautiful dance that happens. And I think one of the wisdoms, I guess, around knowing how best to find satisfaction or happiness is to really introspect and think, okay, what is it that I really need now? Is it that I need to go and get plastered down the pub? Or is it actually I'm feeling quite stressed and anxious and maybe I'd be better off staying at home um, and calling a friend? Or is it that you've been at home and you've kind of become conditioned to your little four walls and you have trepidation about going out, but really what could excite and inspire you would be to have some real heart-to-heart physical contact with someone else outside in an environment which is going to be a bit more challenging. Like, so it's, it's not going with what, necessarily reveals itself to be the first impulse it's digging deeper and saying okay what is it really that I feel would be most fulfilling or useful or joy bringing right now I love that I can so relate (laughs) to those competing needs within myself yeah Um, particularly I I think you know one of the greatest uh, illuminations or personal revelations for me in the pandemic is that I have a lot of social anxiety and I'm a highly social person. And I've been sort of struggling with just what that means or what that looks like in any given moment. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because first of all, it's levels of introversion, extroversion. We're mostly in the middle and it can change. But for instance, people who are generally more introverted or they're not gonna want to go out and social. No, of course not. Like, and, and people who are highly social, who get a lot of energy from being around others, of course that can come with social anxiety, especially when you've been out of practice and other people have been painted as the source of your, you know, of a risk to you. Kind of all of this processing that needs to happen to be able to integrate what we've experienced and then find joy in and bridge over the anxiety to be able to reconnect in a meaningful, fulfilling way with others. Let's talk a little bit about materialism and happiness. In your forthcoming book, you report that people who score higher on materialism, meaning people who have a kind of insatiable drive to acquire kind of an ever-growing collection of impressive belongings, report lower levels of well-being, lower um, levels of social functioning. Uh, They have a harder time psychologically adjusting, right? So there's kind of a decline in resilience. And we see that, you know, mapped to this higher desire for material objects are heightened levels of unhappiness and anxiety. And so I'm wondering, can you just unpack this a little bit for our listeners? So I think modern culture and not just modern culture would have us believe that the acquisition of ever more um, 
quote-unquote valuable or status-signifying possessions are what will make us fulfilled and happy. If I can just have the great car, if I can just have uh, the new promotion, all of these things that are extrinsic or external motivators that give us a sense of having made progress in life. Um, And actually tend to find, or I certainly experienced this when I came to Barcelona to live, having lived in London, which I love as a city. But we tend to find that these things can give us short-term, hedonistic, immediate feelings of happiness, but that that effect is really quite short-lived. And it certainly doesn't replace the fulfillment and ongoing sense of eudaimonia and well-being that we get from, for instance, relationships that are nurturing, that are fulfilling, having connections with people that we find kinship with for whatever reason, Um, engaging in activities that give us a sense of joy or purpose or flow, being able to contribute to something that is bigger than ourselves, so something which is self-transcending in nature. And we know looking back through the history books and through different philosophies that it's typically when we realize that the inner sense of well-being and rootedness and groundedness and connection comes through being in service to something bigger than ourselves, whether it's helping people, um, I don't know, if you're a coach, helping people to reconnect with what they want to do or dedicating time to, to teach children about plants, whatever it might be, some sort of service that that is beyond us as individuals and our everyday needs, that's where we find the greatest meaning and happiness. Um, And when you look at it from the perspective of um, self-determination, which is another really interesting concept we can look at, it's about giving people the sense of autonomy to have agency in their lives, to have competence, to be able to skill themselves, to be of service to themselves and to others, and to have this crucial element of relatedness, of belonging, to feel like you are connected to something which, again, goes beyond the individual. So I think when we when we lose sight of these things, of our agency, of our desire to grow, to develop, of our um, need to belong, when we lose sight of that, through whatever means, it becomes very easy to convince people that the sense of loss or disconnection or unease or unrootedness can be fulfilled by consuming something to bring it in. And for me, it's definitely food. I, I mean, this shows up for all kinds of people. It's food. You know, in my family, culturally, acceptably, it's if you're unhappy, you eat. You show your love, you feed. It's, you know, and everyone has a different version of this, right? But it's that thing of how do I fulfill myself? How do I satisfy this need? How do I fill what is basically, um, I guess, kind of a hole that, that cannot be satiated unless through meaningful contact with others in a context that's bigger than ourselves? So it's kind of... That's, that's where my mind goes to when we think about materialism, we think about the cultural context and how now in particular it's possibly more important than ever before to remake those social bridges and to make sure that we locate ourselves in a framework that gives us meaning and purpose because we need that. The world needs that. If, if we're all totally screwed over by our sense of disconnection, which so many of us are struggling with in one way or another, how are we going to deal with the crises that face us? We're not. We need to come together and collaborate. Um, and that's a good place to start, I think. I'll just share with you that, and I love food, but mine is mine is clothing. And I was reading a, a part in your book when you were talking about that just merely being exposed to a desirable good sort of ignites this sense of materialism in us, right? And I was kind of having this really interesting reflection. I was thinking, oh yeah, like I love when those $400 jumpsuits come up in my Instagram feed, you know what I mean? But 
what is it that I'm actually feeling? What is the parallel feeling that's coupled with that desire? And it actually, it is a little feeling of agitation because underneath that desire is a little bit of a feeling of, I don't have, I can't have, I want, it's not in my hands yet, right? So it's an interesting, um, just to notice, I think, these little ways in which we are compelled to have and to own and actually what's underneath the the surface of that. Um and compelled is such a good word for it. I mean, you really hit the nail on the head there. It's, it feels like a, an agitated compulsion. I must satiate this need. It's too much. I can't sit with it. Um, and I think that's one of the other things that I think, we, you know, we've, we've escaped and I've done this so much. Escaped through Netflix, through, you know, social media in the last 18 months to try and get some kind of levity or what have you. But it's also created an expectation that escaping one's sense of agitation is normal. Or, you know, or is this the go-to medication, if you like, rather than finding ways to sit with the agitation, which I find pretty difficult and which many of us do because it's not comfortable, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, the um, crawling out of your skin metaphor really yeah. is, right? Of like, get me out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're making me think as we're, as we're talking about, I, I'm wondering if there's something to unpack of like the difference between brands who sell to consumers and brands who are in a process of engaging consumers, because when you were talking about like that sense of purpose, right, being called to engage, connect, experience a sense of belonging versus just being kind of called or compelled to to have or buy or consume for that kind of hedonistic one hit wonder of happiness. I'm wondering the difference from a marketing perspective in selling to selling to a consumer and engaging a consumer and how does that sort of map to purpose and happiness Mm. so I guess the the first thing to say is that all of us through our work are aiming to get money so that we can live because we live in a capitalist society and that's how it functions for the most of us so whatever way you're reaching out to customers whatever your business you're selling something um and I don't know why I find that I, I, I find it difficult to accept that. Like I fundamentally don't like accepting that premise, but yet we all work to make money and I like making money because it gives me things that I want to do or gives me permission to travel. So when we think about the ways in which we can sell, but are you selling and that's it? Is that all you're contributing to the world? Or are you selling in a way that helps people express their values because they're buying a product that they know um, is ethically sourced, they can see the the provenance of what they're purchasing, maybe it has a net positive effect, Um, maybe it's, you know, a t-shirt that's been uh, created through regenerative agricultural practices, or, or whatever it might be. And so I think when we think about happiness and consumption and selling and the ways in which we communicate what it is that we're selling. There are brands um, that will do the whole kind of virtue signaling. Yes, this line is ecological, but then everything else in their supply chain is exploitative and causes damage. And then there are the brands who are few and far between, but they are increasing in number, that actually are doing the right thing for the right reason. They've been doing it for a while. Maybe they're lone wolves in their pack, like Patagonia. You know, there's a reason that they get called out so much. It's because they're one of the few to be called out that have a really strong track record that were doing quite alternative things when there wasn't even a social demand for it. And of course, now everyone is awash with these ideas of purpose and meaning and sustainability. And so I think when you can see a track record of a brand like that, when they say, look, we care about this, Yes, our products are going to be more more expensive, 
but we're going to repair everything that you send in. We're going to um, help support financially and through our social channels initiatives that are aligned with the values that we're very clear about espousing. That's going to attract people who, yes, of course, they want that consumption. They want to buy something that's good, that's nice, that feels good, that looks good, that has that status attached to it. But they're also wanting to to engage in something that, again, goes back to this idea of doing something that's bigger than just buying. You know, we have to buy things to live because that's how we, we've structured our societies. So why not buy something that every time you put it on, you're reminded of the fact that by buying this thing, you're somehow contributing back into the system. It's interesting, uh, to, you know, that image you just painted of someone trying on something and feeling a surge of, of sense of deeper meaning. Um, it makes me want to ask, do you think businesses have a role in influencing societal happiness? Yes, they do. <laughs> and I think um, it's, it's a tricky one. Again, the reason I, I, I kind of wince and laugh at the same time, because it's such a provocative and useful question, is that if we think back to the materialist idea, we tend to consume more when we're unhappy and anxious and when we're living in a society that tells us that that's the way that we get uh, our needs met, right? So there's kind of, it's this double-edged sword where in order to consume, there has to be a desire to consume. There has to be a, a, a lack or a need for something. Now, you can have a utilitarian need for something, which may have very little to do with your sense of agitation or loneliness or anxiety, whatever it might be. In which case, yes, of course, we need a certain amount of clothes to clothe ourselves unless we're somewhere warm and we want to be nudist. Great. But most of us need clothes. Most of us need a roof over our head. We need technology to have conversations such as these. And so there's there's certain things that we need to have to be able to function well. Then there's all the extra stuff. You know, I've got a closet that's got clothes that I've kept from like 15, 20 years ago. I can't fit into them anymore. I keep them and they make me feel mildly guilty and shameful towards myself for keeping them or for not fitting in them. You know, all these things. But you keep them. So we've got more stuff than we need. And so then the question is, why are we being directed to or incentivized to consume more than we need? So that's one question. And the role that companies have in getting people to consume more than they need when it's harmful to us and to the planet. And we all fall prey to it. So we all need to be engaged in this conversation. It's not, not just pointing the finger in one direction because it's much more complicated than that. On the flip side, because of the way in which our societies are structured, organisations have an extraordinary potential for good um, and with it a responsibility to change the ways in which we consume to make it for instance apple i love apple products i hate that every four or five years something breaks or something's irreplaceable and i have to literally go and buy a new laptop fix it give me something that means i don't have to mine new stuff out of the ground and cause havoc in order to have my zoom call like it's not that hard sort it out <laughs> and so i think there are these dual things it's like how do we create enough of a mind shift where companies can be part of the solution as well as giving good quality and also affordable product ranges and services so that we can find a better balance. So if you were to name one key way in which people can future-proof their business, given everything we just talked about, um, what would it be? It would be, think about the future that you want your child or child of loved one to inhabit in 30 years' time. And then think about how you, in your role, whatever that role is, in your business and in your social circle can help make that positive vision a reality. Because if we don't do anything, we're going to be in some serious trouble. And everyone can do something. 
In your book, you also cite the adage, money can't buy happiness, which is an adage I know all of our listeners are familiar with. And you point to some of the research around happiness and income levels. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the connection between happiness and income and the connection between um, economic freedom and materialism and what this means in the context of happiness. Sure. So what's interesting is the economic freedom which is different to materialism, has been associated with the sorts of outcomes that we would want for our loved ones and for ourselves. So better education, more job opportunities, higher quality products. And so it's also connected with or correlated to signifiers for well-being, which is all well and good. But what is interesting is that there is mixed research around individual income and how if you get to a certain level, there was one study that showed that if you get to $70,000-$75,000, after that income then tails off your level of happiness. So if you reach it, sure, it boosts you up onto that point, And then when you make more, it doesn't necessarily have an impact beyond that. Other studies that have since come out refute this idea. So it's, it's something that already and still has question marks around it. I think what is clear is that materialism in and of itself, when it's not connected in a context in which there are other things that are vital for well-being, like relationships, belonging, a sense of direction in one's life, a sense of purpose. It, it's just not going to fulfill those needs. Once we've got our baseline needs met, which I believe everyone in the world, in an ideal world, would have, like whether it's through universal basic income or any other means, once that's been met, then you know, it's, it's arguable still how much more we can consume in order to be able to feel better with ourselves. And so I think as an example, uh, I was kind of going to go to, down this track earlier, but then I think we got off into more interesting conversations. But as an example, when I was in living in London, it's an expensive place to live. There's amazing restaurants and bars, but you can go out, spend maybe three hours because it's cold and it's winter and everything shuts at 12, three hours with friends in an overcrowded bar or in a high-end restaurant eating and drinking and then you go home and then you're by yourself or with your family whatever but everything is squeezed into this tiny window it's expensive it's short-lived it's like a an espresso of culture and meaning if you like and for me at least it's just not satisfying coming here to Barcelona is a very different style of life mostly because the culture is different the weather is different you can go out have a couple of beers on a square bring a guitar with friends and you can be there for six hours no one's going to move you along. You're not paying that much. Maybe you spend five euros on your drinks and a couple of snacks. And yet the feeling of satiety that you get, or at least that I get when I walk home at night, is so different to that that I would get in London. I, I don't have this kind of gnawing sense of that was nice, but it wasn't enough. Here it's, oh, I feel so full and alive and grateful to be here. I feel cherished. And there's something there that I think that I've certainly noticed I've missed this last year, this feeling of being cherished or cherishing of others, where you're able to just be together outside of the context of consumption, outside of needing to buy things or be more material or signify your worth in, in financial terms. is just that kind of being together in a space, spending time. Um, and that is just so precious. And I think if we can find ways to design that into places where it's maybe less of an everyday feeling or occurrence, um, then that would really benefit the well-being of all of us. Mm, you just made me, um, I'm like, I'm getting on a plane and I'm coming to Barcelona. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so in your work, you often talk about two things. You talk about culture and 
when you talk about context and you know culture being you know from a marketing perspective what different forms of persuasion or marketing work in different cultures based on the values of that culture and then context the way one of the ways i've heard you describe it is what is the digital context that we're marketing in when we're thinking about digital marketing so instagram being one digital context facebook maybe being another and I'm curious when we're talking about happiness and we're thinking about what happiness looks like in different cultures and different contexts, um, what have you sort of learned about that in your research or is there anything that you can say about that? Cross-cultural research on happiness, that's a really interesting one. I can't speak in great detail to it because it's beyond the scope of most of what I, I look at, but I can speak to the fact that there's some interesting dimensions kind of like personality traits are to people but cultural traits you know are to a specific country so there's a, some work done by a fascinating uh, Dutch academic Geert Hofstede and he looks at these different dimensions or traits that you find in specific cultures so it might be um, how collectivist you express yourself as within your culture how collectivist your culture is how individualist um, it's power distance, so how much distance there is between those who have great authority and those who don't, and so on and so on. And what's really interesting is that while many of us in the West might look at happiness as being connected to, for example, individual freedom of expression, you know, we're highly individualistic societies in many instances, we might look at countries that are more collectivist, maybe China, for instance, and think, well, hang on, how on earth can they be happy? They don't have individual freedom. First of all, that's a very ethnocentric perspective to take. That's our kind of context. But secondly, we can, we can find it hard to make sense of how other cultures that are dissimilar on the surface to us find their happiness. And of course, then you have to dig beneath the surface and say, okay, well, of course, in each society, there's going to be more or less room for self-expression. In some countries, there's very, very little. In other countries, there's a lot. Equally, in some countries, there's going to be more or less emphasis placed on belonging, on culture, on ritual, on collective action. Um, and that's going to bring a different source of happiness and meaning. So I think when we're thinking about happiness within cultures, it helps to take a nuanced approach and to see, well, what are the traits of this culture and how do they encourage certain forms of meaning making and happiness seeking and prioritize those over others? And then we can learn from each other if we take that view. Mm. Yeah. And I would say that that's even happening, you know, within the United States in smaller pockets where different cultures or different demographics are getting together. Right. And there's different ways of tapping into that sense of meaning or different ideas of what happiness is. Let's talk just for a minute about your podcast, The Hive, which is so wonderful. Um, and I actually want to ask you a question that um, you open up your podcast with to each of your guests. And uh oh, <laughs> I knew that was going to come bite me. <laughs> one day, one day it was coming for you. <laughs> this is the day. Oh no! Um, Playing with fire. <laughs> so the question that I hear you ask your guests at the beginning of each show, and that I want to ask you today, is: What do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? I would probably say that we are experiencing a huge amount of tumult at the moment in different ways, in different contexts um, across the world. Some of us, and it's showing up in, in all sorts of different ways. So some of us are really dealing with acute loss of loved ones, of homes, whether it's through forest fires, 
through flooding, through the COVID-19 pandemic, through work. And others of us have been, by serendipity or luck, um, have been relatively unscathed. And yet everyone is having to confront the fact that we are on this beautiful, precious, fragile planet together. And if we don't take collective action, we're going to end up in a really awful place and there's going to be a huge amount of suffering. And so I think even though we have a diverse range of lives and experiences happening all at the same time in the billions of people that exist across this planet and the billions of other entities that exist with us, we all have a collective responsibility to take this opportunity of rupture to try and find a path forward towards repair. If we don't do it now, I fear it's going to be too late. So it's a perfect opportunity to really ask ourselves, what can we do? How do we want to live? And what kind of world do we want to leave those who come after us? So in addition to being a translator, a researcher, a, a marketing expert, you're also a painter, um, which is something <laughs> yeah. you're very committed to, you know, and a podcaster. And so I'm wondering if you just want to tell the audience, where is it that you find purpose and what is it that, that truly makes you happy at your core? That question makes me want to cry, actually. Um, I don't know. I've been really grappling with this. I think it's a really difficult one to answer because when, when you're so attracted to so many different ways of experiencing the world or experiencing life, so like, I love psychology, I love connection, I love music, I love art, I love dancing. And it's amazingly lucky to be in a place and time, born to a family in a country where I have access to these things. Um, and so there's a huge amount of luck that I'm extremely grateful for that I have these things accessible. And yet the, the weight of that is that when I look at people, and again, it's this kind of thing of looking at others and perhaps pining for what you don't have or what you're not as an individual. I look at people who have vocations, who are really committed to a specific thing, and they have this North Star goal, this orientation, this crystal clear vision. And of course, there's going to be days when I'm sure they also question what they're doing. But there's this sense of direction, which I find when you're someone who has many interests, can be quite difficult to, to locate. Um, and so when it comes to purpose, it's really hard to know, because I think on the one hand, I feel like if I saw someone else who had opportunities that were lucky, that weren't using them, I'd think what a waste of a life. Why don't you use these things? So I'm always quite conscious of that, thinking, how can I do my art? How can I, you know, do music? How can I use my voice? How can I write things that are going to hopefully leave the world a bit better off and give me a sense of satisfaction and joy? At the same time, I'm quite reluctant to fully commit myself to the things that bring me joy, like my art, which I absolutely adore. I've never experienced so much happiness as in the last three and a half years standing in front of the easel it almost feels self-indulgent to let myself do that and then I'm reminded of the fact that when we need great cultural and societal change where do we find that change you find it in your music you find it in your art and so it's really an inner struggle for me to give myself permission to give myself over sufficiently to the art and to the music to allow myself to deepen that practice to see what could come of it because I feel like if I don't I will have wasted my life but I find it hard to create an inner sense of value again this kind of capitalist capitalist structure that I've internalized to say if I'm not making money from it if it's something which gives me personal joy 
Is there merit to that? Consciously, I think yes. Emotionally, I haven't found a way to plug that in. And maybe it just comes through doing. I have a sneaking suspicion that my mind just needs to hush and get out the way and I just need to do it and the rest will come. Well-being can be cultivated. Mindful awareness, attention, and goodwill are important parts of well-being, and they are the three pillars that the Thriving on Change video course is built around. To join Elad Levinson in this insightful series as he talks with Dan Goleman, Mirabai Bush, Sylvia Borstein, and more, go to keystepmedia.com shop. There's a, uh, an important concept uh, that's the opposite of stress. It's called renewal. It really has to do with the difference between sympathetic nervous system arousal, where we're all stressed out, we're anxious, we're uh, pressured, versus a recovery mode where we're relaxed, where we can replenish. That's the renewal. And what she's describing in Barcelona is a renewal experience being with people who make her feel good as opposed to being in a high pressure situation, an espresso of culture is the phrase she used. That's very vivid. It's a very high energy uh, and very short lived. It's like a caffeine high and then you're down. But when she comes home from being with people in Barcelona where she feels cherished, it's quite a different experience. It's a renewal. Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting to be sold a lifestyle. Sometimes I find myself looking at advertisements and I, I think it's the object I want. And I'm like, it's not actually the object I want. It's the beach that that person is standing on. It's the smile on their face. It's the way that their hair is blowing in the wind. I actually want to be there. I could, I could care less if I was wearing that particular outfit. Um, and so it's, you know, there's a lot of leveraging of our, of our deeper desires in marketing. Marketing is leveraging our deeper desires and taking advantage of the kind of cognitive confusion where we identify the product being marketed with all of the glitz and glamour uh, and sizzle that it, it is, accompanies it. And the brain makes that mistake over and over and over, and our economy is built on it. As I'm listening to us talk, I'm just hearing the immense privilege in our conversation and just want to recognize it because uh, the ability to buy things that we don't need is huge. And, and that's basically what we're talking about. And, uh, or I even think about the quality of things because often I'll, I'll see something that's uh, in an advertisement that's quite nice, but then I'll go and get some like crappy equivalent of it because it feels like I can afford that. And it's not an equivalent, you know, it's crappy and not a perfect equivalent. And that's the reality for so many of the people. So as we're having this conversation, I just want to couch it with that uh, awareness because it's a very privileged conversation to be able to have. And I am so grateful to be able to have that conversation. And I want everybody to be able to have this conversation. Hanuman, thank you for that point. But I think that the same kinds of marketing are used in the poorest neighborhoods as well as the richest. So for example, the body's natural yearning for good nutrition uh, 
get satisfied by junk food with salt and sugar and empty calories, uh, which I think is a crime, but it takes advantage of the same cognitive confusion where, oh, it looks like this is going to be satisfying. This is going to make give me a hit that's happy. When in fact, it, it's uh, bad for your health. And I think there are images of aspirational wealth in all modern cultures. Have you ever seen the movie The Joneses or something? It's about a family that was planted in an upscale community and they're constantly given all of the nicest, newest things to flaunt so that their community wants them. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, uh, have been reading a little bit about mimetic desire and the desire that we have to mimic those who are closest to us. And I think this too creates a lot of this aspiration to have and to buy, which is this, this way that we are kind of wired to understand our sense of belonging in our community and in the world through appearance, material objects, et cetera. So it's, it's very layered. This was our second episode about happiness in a three-part series. If you enjoyed it, check out part three next week. It features pastor and community leader Wesley Morris, who will discuss happiness through the lens of spirituality, connection, and community. Have you sent us a voicemail yet? We love to hear from you. Send us a message using our SpeakPipe app at firstpersonplural.com for a chance to hear your voice on a future episode. This week, we're curious to hear where you have found joy when times were particularly tough, or anything else you'd like to share. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is supported by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Isis, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Natalina High. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes... Space Rhythm 1 by Secret Circuit and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.